This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Nehemiah. And with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. And as you make your way to the 8th chapter of Nehemiah, well, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Nehemiah was the man that the Lord raised up to lead the nation of Israel into a time of political revival. And throughout the first seven chapters of this book, we learned about the way that Nehemiah organized the people of Israel so that they could then accomplish the construction of the border wall there around Jerusalem. As we've already learned, it actually took Nehemiah and the people there in Jerusalem 52 days to secure the city of God. Incredible. 52 days to complete that wall, uh, to rebuild the defensive wall, as well as hang the doors at every entrance. And now here in our text tonight, we find Nehemiah. He's continuing to act as the governor of Jerusalem. And after organizing a security team to stand guard there at the walls of the city, that's when Nehemiah continued to reveal that he was the right man to lead the people of God politically and the reason I say this is because he was quick to encourage them uh, to turn their attention back to Ezra the priest so that they could receive biblical instructions. That's right, this political leader was quick to point the people to the priest who could teach them the word of God. And with this as the focus, I want to spend our time tonight considering the instructions that, that Ezra then went on to present to the people. And so if you would look with me here at Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to begin our study uh, there at verse 1. Here we learn that all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Now here in the beginning, beginning of this chapter, we find the children of Israel here uh, gathering together in the open square, uh, which was right there at the water gate. And they gathered there so that they could receive a Bible study from Ezra the scribe. In order to understand this special occasion, we should notice that this was actually the first day of the seventh month. That's what we learned there at the end of verse 2. It was the first day of the seventh month. And in order to understand the significance of this specific day, I want to consider the instructions that we find in Leviticus 23. There the Lord declares, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. More simply put, uh, the first day of the seventh month was actually the day which was set aside for what we call the Feast of Trumpets. And just to be clear about this, the festival uh, known as the Feast of Trumpets, uh, it was known as, you know, the, this Feast of Trumpets because it was on this day when the shofar, uh, this ram's horn, would be sounded as a memorial as the people that were then being called to this sacred assembly or this holy convocation. The Feast of Trumpets, uh, which is also known as Rosh Hashanah, is the beginning of Israel's civil year. And it was on this day when the people of God were called to prepare the, their hearts 
for the coming day of atonement, which took place on the 10th day uh, during this annual celebration. In this way, uh, the shofar uh, that sounded off the Feast of Trumpets, it was sort of like an alarm. It was like an alarm going off, which helped the people to remember that this was a time of introspection and consecration and repentance. And listen, there was no snooze uh, on this alarm. This was the time. As the shofar sounded, it was time for the people to start, you know, examining their lives and consecrating themselves for repentance for the day of atonement was upon them. Now, it might interest you to know that there is no mention of the Feast of Trumpets in the New Testament. At the same time, there are a few references to the sound of trumpets, which are actually connected with end time events. One example of this can be found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's verses 16 and 17, uh, where we learn about the day when the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Now from this, we see here that the trumpet of God is going to be used at the time when the church is caught up into the clouds. On that day, well, we're going to meet the Lord right there in the air. Some people think that this is the second coming, and yet... It's not the Lord coming to meet us here on earth. It's the church being caught up to meet him in the air. And at that point in time, there's going to be the trumpet of God sounding off. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, Paul also tells us, and he writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So in this moment, in this twinkling of an eye, at the sounding of this last trumpet, we're going to be changed. We're going to be caught up together, and we're going to be made incorruptible in the presence of God. This trumpet sound in 1 Corinthians 15, it signifies the time of our resurrection as the bodies of every believer are eventually raised incorruptible. Now, as we consider these verses, uh, we shouldn't be surprised to learn here that many Christians are convinced that the rapture of the church will occur during the Feast of Trumpets. And they connect these trumpet sounds to the Feast of Trumpets, though there's no explicit statement uh, in the New Testament to support this doctrine. And yet it is interesting to note that this most certainly follows the pattern that's already been established by our Savior. Now, for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that there are seven feasts on the Jewish calendar. The first four have already been fulfilled. That occurred during the earthly ministry of our Messiah. As a matter of fact, the Lord Jesus fulfilled the Passover feast because he became our Passover lamb. When Jesus died for us, he was acting as our Passover lamb, thereby fulfilling the feast of the Passover. Jesus also fulfilled the feast of unleavened bread, and he tells us that he is the bread of life, the leavening representing sin, uh, well, Jesus was sinless, and therefore he was a sinless or unleavened bread of life, and he therefore fulfilled the feast of unleavened bread. 
Jesus also fulfilled the feast of the first fruits as he rose from the grave on the third day, uh, which is when the feast of first fruits would take place. Jesus also fulfilled the feast of weeks, which is also known as Pentecost. And he did this by enabling the Father to send the Holy Spirit to indwell the church on the day of Pentecost. Well, the next feast on the Jewish calendar is the Feast of Trumpets. That's right, the the next feast to be fulfilled is the Feast of Trumpets. And seeing how the Feast of of Trumpets is is this uh, sacred assembly that begins with the sound of the shofar, well, there's reason to believe then that the rapture of the church could in fact coincide with this annual feast. It's possible that the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets is the rapture of the church. But now the main problem with this position is that it seems to lock down the day of the rapture. I'll remind you that the Feast of Trumpets is scheduled to take place on the first day of the Jewish civil year, which again is Rosh Hashanah. And yet it's important to note that there are actually two days that are set aside for this feast. The reason for why this feast could technically take place on one of two days is because the feast can't officially begin until two witnesses see the first sliver of the new moon. As soon as the first sliver of the new moon is seen by two witnesses, then the feast can, can begin. And, and with that being the case, the rapture could occur uh, during either one of these two days uh, and, and therefore could occur during the Feast of Trumpets while, while simultaneously occurring on a day and an hour that still no one yet knows. At the same time, though, it's also important to remember that there is no statement in the New Testament scriptures which explicitly connects the Feast of Trumpets with the rapture of the church, and so it is pure speculation. It's for this reason that I, that I always warn you about these date setters who are quick to present us with all of their well-crafted calculations. And one example of this was seen back in 1988, <clears throat> that's when Edgar Wisenot, he assured his audience that the rapture of the church would happen during the Feast of Trumpets in September of 1988. He actually had 88 reasons for why we should believe this. And while he himself was convinced of his own calculations, well, 1988 has come and gone, and clearly he was wrong. Over the last year, There's been no shortage of of social media influencers who have assured their audience this year that the rapture of the church is going to occur 2022 during the Feast of Trumpets. Yeah, people were geared up because they went on TikTok or YouTube and they found some teacher with all their calculations showing them it's going to happen. Feast of Trumpets, 2022. Well, the Feast of Trumpets was, was actually three weeks ago. Feast of Trumpets 2022 has come and gone. We're still here. Simply put, all of the calculations, all those super smart people on, on TikTok and YouTube, their calculations were wrong. We need to be careful with all these date setters who want to lock down the exact date uh, when this is going to happen. Rather than repenting, you know, many of them have already geared up to produce another video with you know, calculation corrections. And they're getting ready to put out the next video, you know, that, and, and they're going to convince a bunch of people uh, to, to sign on with, with their calculations. And I would just say, be careful with all that. I, incre- I encourage you to, to ignore all these date setters who, you know, pretend to know what they're talking about, but, but really don't have a clue. And instead, I just encourage you to spend your time studying the scriptures to, so that we can know Jesus. 
That, that really is what's important here is an, a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, the rapture is going to happen. Is it going to happen in our lifetime? I hope so. I hope tonight. You know, when I see the date setters saying Rosh Hashanah, you know, 2022, I go, man, that, that, that'd be wonderful. I'm not mad about it. But I just don't fall for it either because a lot of, you know, so far, you know, all the date setters have been wrong. But really, you know, the word of God wasn't given so that we can try to figure out the exact date of the rapture, but rather so that we can get to know our Savior. And so we ought to be studying the word of God for, for the specific purpose of having a relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and so that we can learn to worship him in spirit and in truth, regardless of whether we're here on earth or in heaven with him. With this as the goal, I want to, I want to continue to make our way through the text before us tonight. Let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 8. Let's begin reading at verse 3. Here we learn that Ezra, uh, that, that Ezra the scribe here was reading from you know, the, the, the law of the Lord. He read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him, at his right hand, stood Mathathiah, Shema, Anaiah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah. And at his left, Pedaiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now here in these verses we find Ezra the scribe. He's, uh, he's teaching from the book of the law. And he taught from morning until midday. Man. I thought that I was long-winded. But this guy taught from morning until midday. He taught a Bible study from the, from the Torah that lasted several hours. And while it's true that uh, we find them there beginning to bow their heads at the end of the study, it wasn't because they were nodding off. Now, whenever I see people bowing their heads in my Bible study, it's, it's because they're falling asleep. <clears throat> But not so for these Israelites. These were listening to Ezra as he taught the Torah. And it's there in verse 3 where we learn that from morning until midday, their ears were attentive to the book of the law. They were giving all attention to the book of the law. Not only that, but it's there in verse 5 where we learn that the people stood up as the book was opened. And in verse 6, we learn that the people responded to the instructions that they heard with their heads bowed, with their faces to the ground as they worshiped the Lord. Christian, listen, those who are truly attentive to the instructions of God's word, they will be moved to worship in spirit and in truth. If we're really attentive to the word of God, it's gonna move us to worship. Not only that, but those who are attentive to the instructions of God's word will also desire more discipleship. To prove my point, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 8. I want to begin reading there at verse 7. 
Because here we learn that Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodijah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelaiah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Now here in these verses, we learn about the way in which uh, the teachers of the law were then sent out to provide the people with further instruction. According to Nehemiah, these teachers read distinctly from the book. Uh, In other words, what this is to say is that they took the time to explain and interpret the word of God. Not only that, but we also learn that these teachers also gave the sense of the word. Or in other words, these teachers took the time to clarify the instructions that, that were being taught from God's word. You know, in this way, the, these Levites were providing discipleship for those who were seeking to understand the scriptures. Those who wanted to understand, those who wanted to know more, they received these teachers to come along and give the sense of what was being taught. In the light of their example, we would all do well to become those believers who are seeking to understand the scriptures through the discipline of discipleship. I want to remind you that those who trust in Jesus, we've been called to become disciples who abide in his holy word. And listen, the irrefutable proof that you've truly become a disciple of the Lord, well, it's demonstrated by the disciple who makes disciples. When a disciple makes disciples, there's proof that they've truly become a disciple. This is what the great commission of Christ Jesus is all about. Jesus made disciples and then sent them to go make disciples. And those disciples were sent to go make disciples. This is how we've become disciples today. Because disciples made disciples made disciples made disciples all the way to us. Should it stop with us? Should we become the Christian who says, well, I know that, you know, I'm a disciple that, made it, uh, that was made by a disciple that was made by a disciple all the way back to Jesus. But I don't really have to be a part of all that. I don't really have to invest my life into other people. Now, it's false. True disciples of Jesus Christ are those who make disciples in the name of Jesus Christ. What this has the goal is make sure that we're receiving the discipleship that we need today so that we can become disciples who make disciples. And how do we know when we've made a disciple? When that person goes out and disciples somebody else, and so on and so forth. That's why we've been called to go out and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them everything that Jesus has commanded. That's what he told us to do. To go, make disciples, baptizing them, and then teaching them everything that Jesus commanded. This is our calling. At the same time, we can also rejoice in knowing that the students of the scriptures will then be strengthened with the joy of Jesus as we go out and do the the hard work of the Great Commission. To make my case, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 8. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 9. Here we learn that Nehemiah, who was the governor... Ezra the priest and scribe, 
And the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat. Amen. I'm thinking about a nice juicy ribeye right now. I don't know about you, but go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now here in these verses, we find the people weeping as they heard the word of God. You know, they're listening to the Torah being taught. They're listening to the instructions being given and they begin to weep. They begin to mourn. And the reason why is, listen, the word of God was designed to convict the hearts of those who will hear it. I know that there's pastors out there who pride themselves in teaching messages that bring zero conviction. And, and it, it's sad. It's sad to say that they are doing everything they can to avoid massive sections of Scripture uh, that are designed to bring conviction. The Word of God was designed to convict the hearts of those who will receive it. And I like the way that Paul explains this. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's there where he declares, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Christian, listen, the word of God ought to bring conviction. The word of God ought to bring correction. The the word of God ought to bring the light of the Lord that shines on the sinful desires found hidden in our hearts so that those thoughts are exposed and corrected. And yeah, when we feel that conviction, there ought to be that weeping and mourning as we recognize how sinful we are before a holy God. At the same time, the conviction that comes from the word of God should also fill us with the joy of Jesus, and the reason why is because the conviction of sin is evidence that the Lord loves us. I'm reminded of someone I was discipling one time coming to me all bummed out because he had let a, a, a cuss word slip, you know, from his mouth that day at work. He got upset at work and, you know, said a cuss word and came to me later on that day and was just so upset that, that he had stumbled in that way. And, and I said, well, praise the Lord. He said, what are you praising the Lord for? I cussed. I said, yeah, but would you have cared that you cussed last week? And he said, no. I said, well, clearly you have a different heart today, don't you? And he said, yeah. The the conviction was something to rejoice about. I like the way that King Solomon put it in Proverbs chapter 3. It's there where he declares, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects just as a father, the son in whom he delights. In other words, those who receive the conviction of correction that comes from the word of God, we can rejoice. 
We can rejoice in knowing that the Lord truly loves us enough to correct us. The Lord truly loves us enough to convict us and, and to bring forth change in our hearts. And as we begin to realize that the Lord loves us, our Savior begins to turn our sorrow into strength as we rest in the joy that comes from Jesus. Now, in order to grasp the joy of Jesus uh, and, and to understand how that joy turns sorrow into strength, uh, let's continue to consider the celebration that's found here in Nehemiah chapter 8. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 13. Here Nehemiah writes, Now on the second day the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths for since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. And here in these verses, we learn that the children of Israel, they gathered together uh, there on the second day of this seventh month. And it was at that point in time when Ezra helped them to understand that it was time for them to start preparing their booths for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, uh, for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day feast which began on the 15th day of the seventh month. The instructions are actually found in Leviticus chapter 23. And just to sum it up simply, you know, the Lord commanded the children of Israel to build these temporary booths or these tents or what you might call tabernacles. And on the 15th day of the seventh month, they were, to, they were expected to then live in these temporary tabernacles for seven days as they spent this time remembering the way in which their forefathers lived in temporary booths or tents, you know, after the Lord brought them out of the land of Egypt. We might think about it like this. Uh, those booths were designed to remind the children of Israel about the rest that their forefathers enjoyed after they were set free from captivity. And what this means is that the Lord commanded them to observe this seven-day celebration every year so that they might remember the way that he's able to free us from the bondage of sin. The Lord is able to free us from, from the bondage of our sinful nature. And not only that, but listen, the Feast of Tabernacles was also pointing to the physical incarnation of our Messiah. As a matter of fact, it's in John chapter 1 where the Apostle John tells us that the Word, or, or the Logos in Greek, the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I like the way that Robert Young translated the Greek that's found here in this verse. Here's how he rendered it. 
the word became flesh and did tabernacle among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of an only begotten of a father, full of grace and truth. That's right, the infinite logos of God came and tabernacled with his people. And in this way, we can see how the Feast of Tabernacles was in fact pointing to the incarnation of Jesus. Not only that, but the Feast of Tabernacles also points to the day when we'll finally be set free from the bondage of this fallen flesh. I like the way that Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's there where he declares, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Christian, listen, we're currently dwelling in temporary tents, which we can also call tabernacles. We all have this flesh, fleshy tabernacle that we're living in. And let's be honest, I mean, most people aren't happy uh, most people aren't happy with their tabernacle. That's why we spend so much money on expensive clothes and, and, and makeup and, and gym memberships and all these, you know, we're constantly trying to, that's why we have huge well-lit mirrors in our bathrooms as we spend most of our day trying to fix ourselves. Yeah, we're not happy with the tabernacle. Well, thankfully, there's a better tabernacle that's coming for those who trust in Jesus Christ. And while it's true that those who trust in Jesus have been set free from our captivity, you know, by faith in Jesus Christ, we've been released from Egypt, but we're not in the promised land yet. We're dwelling in tabernacles right now. We're still living in these temporary tabernacles, which will soon be replaced in the resurrection. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm thinking the, the sooner is better than the later. <laughs> But until that day comes, let's continue to abide in the word of God. As we abide and live in these tabernacles, let's abide in the word of God, much like the Israelites did during the Feast of Tabernacles. With this as the focus, let's take a look at the last verse found here in our text tonight. Look with me there at Nehemiah 8, verse 18. Here Nehemiah writes, Also day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Now here in the final verse of this chapter, uh, we learn about the way in which the Israelites continued to focus on the teaching of God's word as they dwelt there in those tabernacles for seven days. For seven days they dwelt in tab tabernacles, and, and for those seven days, they continue to receive the instruction of God's word. And then on the eighth day, when the Feast of Tabernacles was complete, uh, there was a sacred assembly according to the instructions that we find in Leviticus chapter 23. Now, with all this in mind, I just want to uh, conclude our time tonight by encouraging every Christian uh, to, to realize that as long as we're in this tabernacle, we ought to spend our time studying the scriptures. Right now we know in part, 
and we would do well to continue to learn. We would do well to continue studying the scriptures as we continue to sojourn here in these temporary tabernacles. And as we wait for that day when we'll finally join the sacred assembly, which is there in the presence of our Savior Jesus, until that day we can rejoice in knowing that those who continue to abide in the word of the Lord are his disciples indeed. When we abide in the word of God, we become his disciples. And as we abide in his holy word while we sojourn through this world, well, he reveals his truth to us. And as his disciples, as we abide in his holy word, he has promised that we will know the truth and the truth will make us free. Let's pray.